Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 18th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. I'm a big college football fan and really looking forward to where all of my Georgia Bulldogs are going to go in the draft this year. I bet you we can get five first-rounders. Really exciting. Maybe our fish. Okay, so most of our episodes to date have covered fish that you can catch, you can see if you take time to poke your head underwater, if you're snorkeling or doing scuba diving. But the fish we're covering on this episode, the Pacific football fish, it's one we're lucky enough to learn about when it washes ashore. So we've got two guests from California today, where a few of these fish have been found by beachgoers. We've got Ben Frabel, who's an ichthyologist and the collections manager of fishes at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. We've also got Bill Lute, who's with us, and Bill's the curator at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. So welcome, you two. It's great to be here. Okay, so I mentioned I'm actually sitting in a hotel here in Anaheim, California. I've probably never been closer to a football fish sighting or a museum that's lucky enough to have one. And I'm guessing there probably aren't a lot of people in the world who've handled this species. So first things first, we were hoping that either or both of you could kind of just describe what this fish looks like if you've got it in your hands. All right. So the Pacific football fish, like most deep sea angler fishes, some might describe it as horrific or terrifying (laughs) because basically it's a giant mouth. If you think about it, Um, it's a big globulose thing. It's basically, it's very round, uh, looks kind of like a large tar ball because it's pitch black. uh, And it has a very big mouth uh, with pretty sharp teeth. I don't think it's horrifying or terrifying. I think it's a beautiful fish. It's fantastic (laughs) and remarkable. Um, It has on the top of its head, a modified first dorsal fin spine that is called the Elysium. And at the tip of that is a bioluminescent organ called the Esca. And if you can just think of it, it's like a a fishing rod essentially is what it would look like. Uh, At the tip of that Esca though, it has all these extra appendages that come off, all these little kind of tentacles that come off of it too. And they all have silvery tips. So overall, you got a really big black blob that has a fishing rod off of it and a big mouth. That's kind of how I would explain it. It's really hard to describe. What do you think, Ben? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I put it. You know, just a, a giant swimming head. Nice. Seems like a lot of these fish that sort of live in the deep sea have evolved these really big mouths. What's Is there a reason for that? What's the selective pressure for that? Well, there's not a whole lot of food in the deep ocean. Uh, It's pretty sparsely spread around. It's not really high densities uh, in most cases. And so if you got a big mouth, you can eat whatever you come across. And I think that's really the the reason why so many of these deep sea predators have these huge mouths, especially with these big teeth too. And some of the teeth on the football fish point back into the mouth. So anything it catches, make sure that it doesn't get out. Wow, so it's kind of more like it's acting like a jail cell rather than like daggers to try and hold on to the food. Yeah, and that's what you you tend to see that a lot. You know, a lot of these deep water fish, not just angler fish, but things like dragonfish, viperfish, you know, the ones, the classic big teeth fishes, you know, those teeth are actually fairly fragile. So they're not really using those for chomping. Those are those are pretty much, as you said, acting like cages. Where does this name come from? Because, you know, I was looking at it, I was excited, you know, football fish, but it really looks more like a football fish, if you ask me. So where does this come from? 
Yeah, to me, to me, it's definitely more round and not necessarily like an American football. To me, it looks more like a soccer ball. Oh, nice. Yeah, so I've been trying to get a source on the common name. I don't know if Bill's had any better luck. I haven't really found anything, but you do occasionally find articles that, you know, the original football fish, which is actually, we can get to later, the first species of anglerfish ever discovered was the Atlantic football fish in Greenland. And they're actually quite a bit more common in the North Atlantic. So people are encountering them in places like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, France, places where they play soccer, not so much football, and also looking at the fish. So you can just surmise that the name is probably a reference to what the rest of the world calls soccer and rather than American football. I'm going to start calling it the soccer ball fish. Yeah. (laughs) They're kind of spiky looking too, right? The first thing that came to mind for me was like a freshly picked pickle. I don't know if that has anything of bearing to you guys. I guess I don't do football, but. They are spiky indeed. Uh, In fact, especially the large females that Ben and I have in our collections, they have these really robust spines all around their body. And our collections manager here at the Natural History Museum, Todd Clardy, unfortunately found out the hard way that these are indeed really sharp and that they can puncture gloves uh, Mm -hmm. and they can draw blood. So you guys mentioned you mostly have females, and this brings up a really interesting point about these fish. Can you tell us a little bit about the males? Which I hear look a little bit more like footballs, although maybe a little smaller. A little bit smaller. (laughs) More fusiform, so to say. Yeah. Just a a wee bit smaller. I mean, so let's just talk deep sea anglerfishes in general, because this pattern is going to hold true across all of them. Males are much smaller than females. Females can get quite large, especially in the football fishes, whereas males are going to be dramatically smaller. I mean, in the family that the football fishes are in, I think males get maybe the size of your thumb at the maximum. I think they can get the record that I saw was up to one and a half inches, whereas females of football fishes in general, not just specific football fish, but I think the maximum size for females in football fishes gets up to something like 15, 16 inches. So very difference in size between those. Males also don't have the bioluminescent organ, the ESCA that females have, and basically are just swimming around trying to find a female to latch onto. Yep. And once they latch on, they kind of lose themselves, right? They just kind of end up being there for her purposes. Not necessarily. So There are 165 species of deep sea anglerfish and only less than half of them do full fusion. But it seems that most male anglerfish do latch on at least for reproductive purposes. Some of them latch on just to, you know, spawn and then they let go and probably wither away and die. But what you're referring to is seen in some other groups, not actually seen in the football fish. Okay. Where they start to, the male, once he bites down, you know, his skin from the front of his head starts to fuse with the skin of the female anglerfish. Eventually, it seems their blood vessels start to fuse together, their circulatory systems fuse, and uh, you have probably the most romantic relationship that you can have in the (laughs) deep ocean. Yeah, most romantic relationship, a parasitic male that does nothing other than provide sperm. (laughs) Yeah. You see, they call it parasitic males, but I feel like they're really getting the short end of the stick on that one. So it's sort of a derogatory term for when they're losing out. Yeah, people love and rightfully so love the parasitic male story because it's so freaking bizarre, you know? 
But at the same time, yeah, none have been recorded on football fishes. So of all the football fishes of any species of football fish in collections worldwide, none of them have had an attached male. So that leads us to believe that in this group, males aren't parasitic. Have folks found males that were unattached to the females for the football fishes? Yeah. And actually, male football fishes are the largest males of any type of angler fish. As Bill said, they can get up to about, you know, one and a half inches long or so. And that's, that's way larger than all other male angler fishes. Yeah, good for them. Can we talk a little bit about where they live and kind of what, like, you know, what that pressure does to body forms of fishes down that deep? I mean, these guys are pretty deep down. Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny with football fishes, because a lot of these large females, like the, the ones that we, we encountered, are actually only really known from either being found on beaches or sometimes in the stomachs of sperm whales, or in a few cases caught in commercial bottom trawl fisheries. It seems that the large females like this actually occur in slightly shallower water than you'd expect normal, like when you think about an angler fish. You know, the guess that folks have, a lot of stuff with anglerfishes is guessing because they're so rarely encountered, is that football fish generally occur between 200 and 800 meters. So that's like 600 feet down to like 2,500, 2,600 feet underwater. And these large females may be a little more associated with the bottom, more so than up in the water column. And now, you know, talking about this body shape and what kind of pressure does to it, it's you know, uh, some of it doesn't necessarily have to do with pressure so much as the lifestyle of the deep sea anglerfish. You know, they have this little lure and they are trying to attract prey to themselves rather than pursuing prey. So yeah. they, you know, they've been able to focus on putting a lot of energy into being a giant mouth and not so much on trying to chase stuff because they're letting it come to them. So, yeah, so they're generally very flabby, not very muscular, kind of how I was feeling, you know, in COVID. And, <laughs> um, they're not very strong swimmers as far as folks can tell. You know, deep sea anglerfish hasn't also haven't really been observed that much in the wild, but there's a few instances where they put them in aquaria or ROVs have seen them and they're just kind of like hovering until they get poked and then they kind of like, oh, and swim away. <laughs> what kind of stuff are they eating? Have you found anything in their stomachs on the ones that have washed ashore? No. Uh, in fact, the, the stomachs are always empty. We don't really know their diet. Presumably, they're eating either smaller fishes or other uh, small invertebrates in the deep sea, like some squid. Uh, in fact, I think we did not dissect the one that we got last May uh, because we knew that we were going to put it on display. But Ben did dis dissect his, and I think all he found was just uh, a stomach full of sand, right, Ben? Yeah, quite a lot of sand in there. Although I didn't get too invasive because I want to save it for uh, kind of a less destructive investigation in the future, maybe with like a CT scanner or something along those lines. Oh, cool. But they're not eating sand. That's probably reflective of just the fact that it washing a shore. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I've heard rumblings, whispers out there about people maybe trying to harvest mesopelagic fishes at some point in the future. I was wondering if you guys could speak on that. Well, the mesopelagic, so that's, you know, the, the slightly shallower part of the deep ocean. When we're talking anglerfish, we're kind of talking about the bathypelagic a little bit deeper, kind of below about a thousand meters. The mesopelagic actually has a fairly decent density of organisms, quite a lot of lantern fish, hatchet fish, bristlemouth, those types of things, and also squid and shrimp. But 
A lot of these organisms, because they vertically migrate at night, they'll come into slightly shallower water and then go down into the deep ocean. They don't have gas bladders to regulate buoyancy. Generally, a lot of the fish will rely on molecules, especially molecules called waxy esters, to help regulate their buoyancy. And uh, the problem for us is that when we eat waxy esters, we get a thing called ketorrhea. So you hear the urea part. Yep. You poop yourself. <laughs> it doesn't go over well. <laughs> I ate one of those fish. I ate a um, escalar. Oh, some escalar? In Hawaii. Oh, yep. so good. It's probably the, the <laughs> tastiest good. fish I've ever had. They're super tasty. You got to be, you got to be careful. Um, so historically, you know, deep water fish have just not really been on the menu because of the health effects. But in recent years, they've kind of come up with industrialized ways of denaturing the waxy esters and making them more digestible, not just to humans. I mean, this is an issue for some species of even shallow water fish and, and other mammals or something that we'd want to feed fish meal to. And so that's really kind of where this idea of pursuing midwater fish as a uh, potential protein source is coming from now that we have potential abilities to industrialize the kind of the breakdown of waxy esters. But it's a concern. You know, we don't have baselines for a lot of these things. We don't know, like most deep sea fish, we don't know how old they are. Um, people don't really understand how to read their otoliths very well. We don't know how long they live. We don't know what their life cycles are like. So the idea of kind of starting to harvest them is a little uh, little scary just because there's a lot of that baseline data we don't we don't still don't have. So with those females you've gotten your hands on, have you been able to take out the otolith and do any aging or just very different? I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut into that skull. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We, I didn't want to, I didn't want to damage the one that we had. Cause again, we wanted to put it on display because it's such yeah. a, such a rare find to get such a good specimen that's in really good condition. Cause a lot of deep sea fishes come up in fishing nets and are really beat up when you see them. But when the football fish washes ashore, it's actually in pretty immaculate condition. So we didn't want to cut into the head of ours. But I will say this about the Pacific football fish that we have in LA, holding that thing and looking at it, I would not want to eat it. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't look really appetizing. There are some lophia form fishes that we do eat. We do eat monkfish. That's a type of lophia form fish. But looking at that football fish with the spines on the side, it's not really something that I want to eat. I was curious what the filet would look like. I ate a lot of different fish and I was just kind of, yeah, I mean, no, you guys didn't filet that one, but. It's very white. The meat's very white, but it's also got a lot of water in it. So okay. uh, this is the kind of the case with a lot of these kind of not really, <laughs> not very good swimming deep midwater fish. You can start with a six inch filet, but once you start heating that thing up, it goes down to a couple inches <laughs> really quickly. So. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> So it, it sounds like we don't know a ton about their behavior and whatnot, but we do know about their anatomy. And I want to ask more about this ESCA and how it works, the little lure. Are they producing that bioluminescence themselves or do they have some other organisms in there that are helping them out with that? Yeah, so they're not actually doing it themselves. You would think it's attached to their body. They're doing this light show underwater, but that's not actually the case. It's bacteria in the ESCA. And so the bacteria is what's luminescent. However, we do think that they can control how much light is shown and they can control it either. It's thought through the amount of oxygen that they supply in the blood to the ESCA. And also there are muscles around it. And so they might be able to contract some of these muscles to constrict the amount of light that is emitted from the ESCA. So it, it looks like they can control it, even though they're not the ones particularly producing it. It's the bacteria in the ESCA. So how did how the bacteria get in there in the first place? And then what are they getting out of this relationship? 
Yeah, so that's a that's a good question. And it's another classic anglerfish type answer where we don't actually know, but it's thought that a lot of the escas have a little opening on the back of them. And so it's thought that either the bacteria come from the water and are attracted to the anglerfish because it's providing some sort of chemical cue or medium for them to settle on, or it may actually be on the mucus of the fish, you know, from its larval stage and lives on the mucus. And then as the fish develops into its adult form, the bacteria kind of gets into this little bulb on the tip of the esca. Before they're mature, though, they don't have bacteria in the esca. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I should say that. <laughs> so that kind of brings up my next question with reproduction. I mean, what are the, how are the juveniles eating? Do we know much about like how, you know, what happens with the eggs? Are the juveniles inhabiting a different area of the water column? Yeah, so juveniles are definitely shallow, shallower in the water column. They're, they're closer to the surface. And then when they metamorphose into their adult forms of either male or female, they can also be found at different depths. So as Ben mentioned, the really large females that we've gotten for football fishes pretty much wash up on shore. Some of them have been caught in nets, but a lot of them are found washing up on shore. And we're not exactly sure why. Males, though, that have been collected of football fishes are typically pretty deep. And so I don't think the females are hanging out in a different area of the water column than the males. Obviously, they do have to reproduce at some point. So females are probably deeper, too, at some point in their life. But the the juveniles are up in the upper water column. And they're pretty voracious. They'll eat, you know, any sort of small invertebrates, ketognates, copepods, amphipods, that kind of stuff. And what's what does their shape look like? Also little blobs. Little blobs, okay. okay. <laughs> um, they look, they, the males and females look pretty similar to a point in the larval development. And then the females kind of get more globular and the males are a little more elongate and they start to differentiate. So the males do feed as larvae and juveniles, but once they tr- kind of transform into a more adult morphology, the males almost, as far as we can tell, the males do not feed as adults. So they're kind of just relying on, you know, whatever energy they they gained as a, as a larvae, uh, similar to what you see in a lot of like insects or invertebrates. I mean, we even see that with, you know, salmon and lampreys and a lot of stuff when they start getting ready to get that final stage, you know, it's all for reproduction and nothing else. So yeah, exactly. Why is this light that they're producing attractive to whatever prey may be coming in? Well, like you'd think down there, maybe they'd evolve to avoid something like that, unless there's other things out there that are enticing that light up sort of like that. So, so why is this sort of, why is this show working for them? Why is a bug attracted to a bug zapper? (laughs) Any answer that we give will kind of anthropomorphize it a lot too, but there's not much going on in the deep sea, right? You're in a pitch black environment and you see some stimulus out there, some light show going on. What do you, what do you, I mean, what do you think, Ben? What else are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you also have to put it in the context, you know, a lot of creatures in the deep ocean and even the shallow ocean biologically produce light and they don't just use it for attracting prey. A lot of them do use it, but some of them, a lot of them use it for communication, for species recognition. So there, you know, there are shrimp, there are fish swimming around glowing Is it, you know, dangerous to illuminate yourself, but when you're trying to find a mate, you know, it may become important or honestly to even distract predators. If you're in a school with other lantern fish or something like that, and you're all glowing, it's like zebra stripes. You can't really see it. So you see a lone glowing object sitting out there 
It could just be, you know, an injured shrimp that's swimming around, not realizing, or squid that's not realizing it's glowing. You swim up, classic scene from Finding Nemo, turns out to be a giant mouth. You get engulfed. Mm -hmm. That's the end of you. I think another important thing to say too is we commonly always say that the anglerfish light is for attracting prey. There's also a distinct possibility that that light is not just for attracting prey, that they also use it for communication as well. So there could be multiple uses for that light. I want to move this conversation in a slightly different direction now. Um, And it's really around the importance of, you know, finding a fish like this. It's really a treasure trove of information. Folks aren't finding a lot. I kind of want to ask you guys about the process. So someone finds a fish like this on the beach. What do they do? And then how does it go after that? Like, does it go directly to you guys or who takes the call? And then how do you preserve it? And what happens exactly? Well, what we hope happens is that when someone finds a fish like this, especially with the football fishes, the really mature females that seem to just wash ashore, is that they report it to some authority and that they don't just take it off the beach. You never know what's going to happen when someone just wanders across a fish. And we probably lose more specimens than we realize, but we hope that you report it somewhere, either to a lifeguard or if you're at a national park, you can talk to the park authorities, Um, but report it is, is what we would definitely recommend. And then those people will contact us or honestly, with the case of the first football fish, I just randomly got a text from Ben when it first washed up because it was making its rounds very quickly on social media. You guys lost one, right? There's three that came up, but you only got your hands on two of them, right? Yeah. So that's the sad story with the second one, I guess, from last year is that I didn't find out about that one. That one washed up on a beach just literally a mile north of Scripps right here. And the person who saw it sent a picture to a local news station and the local news station emailed Scripps, but they took a few days to email us and were like, hey, what's this fish? And uh, so I saw it immediately, was already, you know, primed because the one that ended up with Bill at Los Angeles County had washed up a few months previously. So I was like, where, where was this picture? When was this picture? And like, you know, it took a couple hours to get a hold of the person who took the picture. And then it turned out that the picture had been taken a week earlier. And so oh, no. long gone, long gone. So, I mean, it looked like pretty good conditions. The one that I've, you know, I've seen some pictures online. What should, like, if somebody finds one, should they put it on ice? Like what, what should they do to help preserve it in the, you know, before you guys get your hands on it? I think, as Bill said, the main thing is they shouldn't do anything. They should go tell a lifeguard. The third football fish, the one that we have that we just put on display, um, that is in good condition, that one actually washed up in a marine protected area. So if somebody took that off the beach, that's that's illegal, right? Um, so we don't want you to take it. The lifeguard, if you're a lifeguard or fish and wildlife staff, put it on, yeah, put it on ice. You can put it in the fridge, put it on some ice. You can even freeze it. That's fine with us, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that we got, the the park authorities, it washed up in Crystal Cove State Park. And those people give props to them because they knew what to do. They they wrapped it up a couple times in a garbage bag, basically, and uh, they put it into a freezer and froze it for us. So they uh, made sure to also, they put the esca, they put it up to the next to the body. So it froze with the body, not out. So it wouldn't oh, nice. break off, which was great. If you put it on ice, contact us uh, quickly or contact whoever is relevant quickly. If you freeze it, it can wait a little bit longer. Yeah. And then once you get it, how do you preserve it for display at the museum or for study? So, you know, kind of the traditional method of preserving fish specimens in collections is we will take tissue samples and any sort of photographs, measurements, 
Bill can talk about this in a second, look for biofluorescence. And then uh, we do what's called fixing. We fix the specimen or preserve the specimen in formalin or formaldehyde. Um, this kind of you know causes the proteins to bind up on themselves so they won't decay. It also kills bacteria and anything else living in there. It's kind of a sterilizing. And then but formalin is pretty nasty. It can get very acidic over time. So we only fix the fish in there for a few weeks and then we transition them into to alcohol for long-term storage. So it's kind of like pickling, I guess. Back to the pickles. They can stay in alcohol. You know, it keeps some moisture out of the tissue. So it keeps it a little taut, but it also keeps any fungus or bacteria from growing. And they seem to be able to stay that way for, uh, for hundreds of years, as far as we can tell. Being museum folks, do you guys subscribe to the practice of only messing around with the right side of the fish or do you chop it all up when you're digging around in them? I mean, you, you work with the fish that you got, right? And so sometimes there's a pretty side and an ugly side. And if that's the case, I mean, I'm going to personally take pictures of both sides, but I might present the prettier side. But yeah, the, the photograph, the nice side that you're supposed to present, industry standards, as you will, would be the left side of the fish and anything destructive you would try to do on the right side of the fish. Being that there's so few of these specimens around, I'm just thinking if I was in that position, I'd give them all personal names, not just museum specimen names. Do you guys do that at all, even informally or no? I do. I am not a fan of the practice necessarily, uh, but we did name ours. There was a Twitter poll uh, for, for our museum to name ours that washed up last May. And uh, the name that one was, was Spiny Baby Cakes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll throw in a request. If you come across another one this year, because it sounds like maybe there's more of them. Maybe that's just a coincidence or not. I don't know. Name it after Jordan Davis. He was my favorite bulldog this year. Hope he goes in the first round. Just a request. You don't have to do it, but think about it. <laughs> We'll, we'll keep it on the list. <laughs> Where else are these fish washing up? I mean, have the other Pacific states had any wash up or is it mostly in California? On this side of the uh, Pacific, I think they have only really washed up in California. They're, Bill can correct me. I think there might be a record from Baja um, or the coast of Mexico. I can't remember, but there's a couple of records, um, I think, off of Ecuador. I think one closer to Hawaii and then uh, quite a few from Japan. The scientific name is Hymantolophus sagamius. It's just named after Sagami Bay um, in Japan, where the first specimen was found. There's also a couple not big females that have been collected off of uh, Papua New Guinea. So, And did you guys mention this is the first type of football fish that was discovered? Uh, no, this is the sister species to the, well, supposed sister species to the first that was discovered. And uh, the first that was discovered is the Atlantic football fish. Very creative in the names here. But the yeah, the first Atlantic football fish was found on a beach in Greenland in 1833 and actually ended up being the oh, first wow. species of deep sea angler fish ever described by science. Didn't they only collect the esca of that fish, though, and the body is no longer with it? <laughs> yeah, they only saved the esca. They threw away the body, I guess. Oh, that's a bummer. Who is in charge of that? And that also is kind of the, the record for the largest football fishes from that specimen, which is always kind of sketchy. You, you, trusting these 1800s records. I don't know if the rulers were weird or not standardized or what, but that's also the largest record, even though they only saved the lure. What we found that's remarkable about the Pacific football fish that washed up in May is that in addition to bioluminescence, that is the production of light, these deep sea Pacific football fish females also fluoresce. That is the, the skin around the esca, what we found, will emit a like, greenish light 
under the right fluorescent lighting conditions. And that's really weird because for fluorescence to occur, you need external light, which is not hard to come by in the ocean for shallow water species. But something that lives in this bathypelagic zone with no light at all, it's very rare to find fluorescence. And so what we think is happening with this is actually the bioluminescence, it's creating its own light that will cause fluorescence to occur as well. And that's kind of what also we think is going on if you look at the ESCA all of those filaments have like silvery tips and people have looked at them in the past, haven't found that they're transmitting light to those tips rather that the tips are just reflective tissue. So it's probably reflecting the light from the bulb. But this is also something that you can only find from a fresh specimen too, which is why, you know, reporting a really rare or unique fish, if you see it on the beach is important because we can't go back to preserve specimens and look at fluorescence. Even though we can keep specimens around in great condition for people to study for hundreds of years, the way that we preserve them, it does limit some of our ability to do some science. Um, and you know, things like color really fade quickly in preservation. So even though we have tons and tons of specimens in both of our collections, Ben and I, the colors faded in all of them. They're kind of beigey looking fishes for the most part even the deep blacks of the anglerfish will fade over time. But fluorescence is also something that you need a fresh specimen for. You can't go back and look at fluorescence in preserved specimens. What we like to ask our guests as well is, um, you know, why should people care about this fish? It's an important part of the ecosystem, right? So you have not that much food in the deep sea, and yet it's still part of that trophic structure. You don't want to take, whenever something is part of, the food web of an ecosystem. You don't want to take that species out, right? It really helps with flow of energy through the entire ecosystem. The deep ocean is the largest habitat on the planet. It is most of our planet. Um, So, you know, the fact that us as land mammals don't interact with it that often, unless we're famous directors that can afford a submersible, um, (laughs) you know, it just makes it something that we just don't think about. And you also are like, oh, it's cold, it's dark. It's not as affected by the sun or by global warming, but it is. It's, you know, it's a habitat that is being affected by, by climate change, by changes in the surface of the ocean, because it's all nutrient cycles. All the nutrients are cycling down there. People don't think about preserving the deep sea or protecting the deep sea as much as probably shallow water habitats. And probably because they don't know too many species that inhabit these areas. But something like an anglerfish that people do know about is a good kind of flagship species to to get support of, to recognize that these are important habitats of the ocean as well. All right. Get out there and enjoy all the fish. And if you're on the beach and you come across a cool looking fish, please report it to the proper authorities. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.